Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. We don't even know how people are suffering until we're there with them. And even then, it can take a while for it to sink in. Out of all of these experiences that you would think would be so painful or soul-crushing, and instead, he had been right there with me. I can't afford my pride. What is my pride? My pride is nothing. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, dear podcast listeners. This episode is airing on Maundy Thursday, a blessed Maundy Thursday, and a blessed Holy Week to you. Meditating on the passion, on the Lord's suffering for us, we often recall times and places of other suffering in our own hearts our lives, the lives of others. Several weeks ago, I was introduced to a woman who has seen what it's like for God to bear witness to himself in the life and sufferings of his people in profound ways across borders, across borders of nationality, religious tradition, across the lines of sinner and saint, priest and prostitute. These stories are about some of God's people living at the border of Mexico in the U.S., and how a new Mexico photographer and writer found herself over and over involved in the work, the suffering, the questions and prayers of folks in a small town called Palomas. These stories are also about how God works in and through the wounds of our lives as we meet very similar wounds in our neighbors. How do the marks of violence and pain and fear often become, amazingly, doors to grace? My guest is Victoria Tester. Victoria is a third-order Franciscan and a member of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Coleman, Texas. She is a poet and playwright and a recipient of awards that include an Academy of American Poets Prize and a Willa Cather Literary Award. She has also worked as a photographer and founded the San Isidro Bean Project, which in a time of famine made over a million meals possible in cooperation with a family farm. Perhaps there's a niche of this week that's so busy for church leaders that you've been able to stake out for a moment of quiet and meditation of your own. I hope so. Maybe this moment is that moment. In any case, we hope you enjoy the conversation. 
Victoria, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me. I know you mentioned that you live in Coleman, Texas. Can you just start by telling me a little bit about Coleman, Texas? What's what's the shape of your life? What do you love about Coleman? Well, I have a garden. I grow roses here, which was really not real possible in New Mexico and, and in the mountains of Arizona. So we left a wild life. We lived off grid in an extraordinary place in the mountains. And uh, we were just getting older and had some health issues, but also thought, would it be wonderful to have an adventure? My husband had never lived on a paved road before or had mail delivery or yes. what? <laughs> yes. So, so it's, it's really been wonderful. It, we love it here. I also wanted to be within walking distance from church, though we don't we don't really walk. I have to say that we we still drive. <laughs> <laughs> she admits. <laughs> but yes, and so it's a, a tiny town, probably four thousand people, and many churches. And God is a daily part of life. Everywhere you go, it's God bless you. And yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely lovely. Tell us, please, a little about how you came to fall in love with Mexico and particularly with border communities. I wonder too, if you sort of can see in retrospect the path of your life leading to this. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, that is an excellent question with several layers. And okay, I never, <laughs> this is awful. I never fell in love with Mexico or the border, I must say. That was sort of a romantic <laughs> question, wasn't it? <laughs> But in a way, you know, I did. I It's a relationship and a deep, you know, visceral relationship and that deepened over time. But actually, my first time to go across, I went as a photographer. I was just freelancing. I had no job. I was studying photography in Silver City, New Mexico. And uh, I, I wanted the simplicity. I wanted to... You know, the starker a situation is, the more that we see the human figure mm. and and we see the light. So I really went initially looking for the human figure and for light and for shadow. And boy, did I find it. <laughs> and God was in that light because if I say I photograph myself and I'm surrounded by my plenty, whether it's too many books or too much overflowing kitchen pottery, it's really going to distract to some degree from, it, it's, it may not show my essence. And I was looking for the essence of people. And so I began to go across and I was quite nervous, but my teacher was wonderful. It was Michael Berman, who is a great landscape photographer who teaches at Western New Mexico University. And he said, you're giving yourself too much time to be afraid, just go. Hmm. And that was a really good lesson, you know, just jump in. And so I did. I was young, I was poor. Of course, I had all I wanted to spend on, on film and I was doing my own prints. And I had a wonderful old pawn shop camera. People would let me stay with them. And I would like end up sharing a bed with all these little kids who'd be being the bed on me and you know we would <laughs> and, and in the morning you know there often be only one thing to eat in the house and 
you know, the youngest child would get the egg or whatever it was, and no one begrudged them that. And I began to see how easily hunger hides. We don't even know how people are suffering until we're there with them. And even then, it can take a while for it to sink in. But what started the whole thing, I, I snuck up behind a woman in church who was praying. It was in the Roman Catholic Church in Palomas. And she was an elderly woman who was actually, she took care of the church um, and the light was on her feet as she prayed, and I just couldn't stand it. So I invaded her privacy. You know, I, I don't think she ever knew, but I took these photographs and I showed the photograph to a woman who eventually became my godmother in Palomas. She was marvelous. But she said, oh, look at this. This looks like an old Mexican photograph. We do the best photographs. She said, I'm going to show this to the priest. So she took it and she showed it to the priest. We met and began a, a hmm. friendship. Victoria, I have a question I didn't plan to ask, but you really, okay. you've led me to it with your talk of photography. What are some distinctives of Mexican photography that a Mexican woman who's an appreciator of photography says this looks like Mexican photography. I think that it was because I was doing black and white. Mm -hmm. It was much cheaper to do black and white and easier to develop oh, print. Mm -hmm. And so you learn to, you know, get your ranges right, your blacks mm -hmm. and your whites and in, in what is in between. And then I was using sepia tone. She even, she's the one who wove me my camera strap. I oh. still have it. That was one of the ways she survived was by weaving bands. And so that's how that started. And later when I had heard that people were starving, I mean, I was trying to just live my life. I had since gotten married. I wasn't quite the freewheeling gypsy spirit that I had been, but I, I realized I couldn't shut it out any longer. I was really enjoying my marriage. I enjoy life. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just like a spirit party girl you know I just want to have fun all the time but I realized I've got to do something I thought later well how how did I end up here and you know one of the things was my I did have some contact with immigrants with especially with Mexican and Salvadoran workers this would have been like in the 80s and during the war in El Salvador but my father would occasionally have Mexican workers come and work for him and I noticed how kindly he was and tried to speak their language and paid them which is, you know, some people will just call the border patrol, but my father paid them and he appreciated them. And I, I put myself through undergraduate largely by uh, washing dishes. And I ended up often working with Salvadorans who were, we were all washing dishes together and having ah. the merriest time. Ah, I bet. They would tell me about their, their border crossing stories and their troubles and their mm. joys. You learned Spanish early on then. Yeah, I did. But through them and through listening to the radio and then studying it in high school. I wanted to say, because there's a little more. This was a yes. this is a big question about what in my own life brought me mm. to this. I think many of us who really get into aid and and risk our lives and sometimes ultimately give our lives, it's because God has given us wonderful old wounds. And those wounds are doors into being able to be with others, 
And uh, so I, I, I can't go into real detail about it because some of the people in my family are, are still alive. But drug smuggling itself, which has largely ruined the border, has caused this so much violence with the attempt to control, you know, the criminal enterprise at the border. It played a large part in ruining my own very early childhood. Uh, I had a, a parent in prison for a while for it. And consequently, a small part of my own childhood, we suffered. I, I had a coat, but it wouldn't, it had no zipper, you know, a little pink coat that I loved. But oh, I was so cold, you know, or I wouldn't have school supplies. You know, I hadn't really thought about these things because we had gone on to live a a materially nice life. But I, what I saw was that God had specifically created out of all of these experiences that you would think would be so painful or soul crushing or humiliating. And instead he had been right there with me because he had known that I would go and I would help children. Hmm. This was when my whole life came together. Victoria, I love your description of wounds as doors. That is so evocative. I'm wondering about your involvement in the San Isidro Bean Project, your parish in New Mexico, Holy Trinity Anglican, when you were in Silver City, started work with Diaz Farms, which was this three-generation farm to produce and share food with the border town of Palomas in Chihuahua, which was starving at the time. There was this terrible famine. My question is, could you tell us a bit about the contours of this specific project, the specific season of aid, and how this specific moment gives us a glimpse into life on the Mexican border? I do want to say that I was also a member. I, I attended both churches, both the Anglican, which had began as a continuing Anglican church, and the Episcopal Good, Good Shepherd in, in Silver City as well. And the, the deacon and the vestry there at Good Shepherd Episcopal Church in Silver City were already doing wonderful aid, and they supported mm. the orphanage in Palomas. And so there was already so much being done when the Bean Project started, I mean, it's it's it happened, I guess, when God moves, he moves quickly, I, I get told. And I found that to be often true, that how did the Bean Project serve as an example of life on the border today? Well, for one thing, I mean, I can easily see how people might especially young people might join a cartel. I had driven across and I was visiting a program that served the elderly. But when I got there, the workers were crying. There was no food. There was literally nothing to give anyone. I just lost my mind and I thought, I'll be back. Though I had no idea what I was going to do. And this, this shows you. <laughs> I thought, I'm driving and I'm going, well, I could rob a bank. <laughs> You're having a sort of Robin Hood yes. moment. Well my, well, my grandfather did this. So I think it, maybe it's in my blood. And I thought, well, I could rob a bank. And I see the sign for the farm, which I had known, you know, every year we would go and get our green chili. It's a New Mexican tradition. But I went in and 
there was a man there and I went up to him and I said, people are starving in Palomas. Mothers are selling themselves for food. And he looked at me and his face just turned white. And he turned to the workers and he said, load up for truck. And so they filled it with beans and pumpkins, corn, rice, you know, <laughs> and I, I went back. And of course, you know, was greeted it as the hero. Of course, God is the hero. And this is what Eddie Diaz of Diaz Farms always reminded me, though it took me months and years to understand, give the glory to God, Victoria. And that was how it started, but sort of that moment of I'll do anything. And so I understand how it might feel to be willing to do anything to feed your family. Hmm. But, you know, another thing that I, I really see the similarity with what happened with the Bean Project and then what is ongoing now is that we had an utter dependence on God from day to day, from week to week. We did not accept funds ourselves. We worked out of the privilege of poverty. We had this utter freedom that the privilege of poverty that was so important to St. Clair. So we were utterly dependent on God. And it was terrifying until we learned that the more we depended on his mercy, the more that mercy grew. And so no salary no dependable steady source no we board asked, no board to please <laughs> no board we asked only for what we needed as we went and i think that and i know there is a, a vast difference between chosen poverty which is the privilege of poverty yes and 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 then poverty that is imposed, especially the poverty imposed by violence. And my, my Anglican bishop at that time of the project, he was such a wonderful spiritual support for me. I couldn't get by without it. I mean, obviously, I was a potential bank robber, and I realized that about myself, and I had to put myself under some spiritual direction. <laughs> but he referred to the project as the Underground Bean Railroad. Ah. And utterly delighted him. And I know that those underground railroads still exist. I mean, that's how so much aid happens. And it happens in spite of impediments, in spite of confiscations. It crosses the food crosses because God wants his people fed. When you were in Palomas, when you would make visits and you would stay there, how would you describe the faith of the people who stayed as it fell into drought and famine? I know many left I would imagine that by the time the famine and the drought were at a, at their peak, that it maybe felt like a ghost town. What, what what was the life of the church and the faith of the people like? For example, were were priests able to serve their communities? Absolutely, the priests and the ministers continued to serve, and sometimes their lives were in danger. Times bishops would withdraw priests whose who had been threatened or or who were even preaching too vehemently in, with a lot of anger against the cartel. Mm. They don't want their priests to be murdered, and many priests have been murdered. There were priests who were robbed. I remember specifically one, they intercepted him on the road, and they were going to kill him, but they were rifling through everything, you know, taking all that they could steal, and they found his priestly garments. Oh. And when they found out he was a priest, 
they did not give everything back, <laughs> but they, they left him his life. And so they didn't kill him. But churches were stolen from, for instance, in at the, the poor Anglican church in, in Juarez, where Father Miguel Angel was at that time. That happened. All of their fencing was stolen. But ministers prevailed because, you know, even if, even if, and this happened, the, sometimes the host would be stolen or desecrated, at, you know, it'd be on the floor during the robberies and stepped on. And the rituals of the church continue because they are rituals of the spirit. You know, at the grocery store, if you use your debit card, it's going to ask if you want cash back. I often say yes, just so I can have an extra five bucks in my pocket. You never know when you're going to need that cash. But it turns out as often as not that it's someone else who could use the five bucks. And this reminds me that monthly support of the Living Church podcast is about the same amount. Just like the bit of grocery store cash lying around, it can go to a good cause. If you enjoy this show, it might be time to become a monthly supporter. Your support is a gift that you can feel great about, encouraging, equipping, and entertaining Christian leaders, serving the Anglican family. Support options include $0.99, cents, $4.99, and $9.99 a month. To share a little love with TLC, go to anchor.fm forward slash living dash church and click support, or just click the link in the show notes today. It strikes me that there's something else here happening that when when a sacred space is broken into and specifically you mentioned the host being knocked on the floor and stepped on the body of jesus being knocked around being stepped on his own body the body of his people being pillaged being violated just speaks to me of the co-suffering that he does with us that that itself is still a sign of god's being with and being for the people of this community. Should the church ever have been broken into? No. You know, is it the Lord's will that his house be ravished by robbers? No. However, just again, a powerful image somehow of God's presence, of his, of his felt presence with people, even in the image of the sacred host being stepped on sanctuary. Thank you for pointing that out. You know, the churches continue to be the only places where people were able to gather because no one seemed to literally bar the door to the church. You know, the the car cartel life is so interwoven into life on the border that, of course, the cartel attend church and... Mm you know, quietly and, you know, mm. it's a whole web of life, but, but the church did seem to play a role where there was this freedom, freedom to assemble and this freedom to go and to be ministered to because any other sort of public activity was strictly discouraged or you know, at best monitored by the cartel. I mean, I remember going into the cantina in Palomas, which, you know, no woman really, especially a foreigner, is supposed to go into the cantina unless she works there. 
I mean, this is essentially a bar where women go around without much on, and then there are rooms, so it's a, a brothel as well. And I would go into the cantina during the day, and the women would generally be sitting around and embroidering and reading their uh, novellas or watching TV. And I remember I saw that there was an altar set up on the, across, you know, from the bar and underneath it. And it was so beautiful. And I was just amazed and I photographed it. And the bartender, she laughed at me. She said, don't be surprised. You know, God is everywhere, even here. And we need his protection against some of these men. It was very violent, very terrible situation. But, but you know, the cantina workers, I would say almost all of them attended church. And they would come in with their heads covered hmm. and barefoot, hmm. no shoes, you know, penitent. And they would stand at the back of the church after everyone had taken their pews and the church was generally overflowing it was crowded and the priest treated them very gently but that show of faith from among the most scorned people and the love that was shown to them to these women by the women who took care of the church they never said you know these cantina workers without saying those poor women it's that's an example of how integrated god is into daily life there that makes me think of the sacraments of the church and what, and what you might also call the sacramentals. So any of the things like the sprinkling of holy water. I'm wondering if there's a particular instance or a story that would stand out in your memory, Victoria, about witnessing a moment when one of these sacraments or sacramentals of the church was used and, and it really stands out to you as a, a demonstration of, of the presence of God in that moment. I remember being present at the death of a woman. Oh, she was dying very painfully of diabetes and her family was gathered around. They were very humble people. And I was simply there as a visitor, but I was welcomed because I was a friend of the priest. And the priest arrived, and as she was dying, a very painful death. She had gone blind from her diabetes, and I guess her organs were shutting down. And yet she endured and suffered, and the priest had brought holy water. And he was there with the last rites, and I remember her saying to him, Padre, Padre, me desespero. I am beyond hope. And he said, you do not suffer alone. You are in the arms of God. And so I think that, that the holy water, you know, the cross, this meant very much to the family. He was a witness mm -hmm. to God's presence when he went through the door in this house that, you know, this very, very poor house. I think that the sacraments and the sacramentals of the church come alive in deep suffering and grief in ways that in comfort, it can be sometimes harder to appreciate. Yes, 
Certainly. I was curious, as you know, how you've seen ecumenical Christian relationships develop across the border, maybe even on both sides in the U.S. as well as on the Mexican side. Where have you seen that? And, and are there areas in that cooperation that you would hope for God's grace to penetrate even more deeply? Yes, on both sides. And I think that the, the churches were aiding their own because those were places of distribution. Those and, and also the ministers are in a good position to know who was in the most need of the aid and food being limited. But on the other hand, part of what happened in, and I keep saying Palomas because it was sort of a microcosm during that time, but part of what happened was that beautifully, because the Catholic priest was able to cross, we had rented him a storage unit so that he could store beans and take them across. He also delivered beans to the Protestant orphanage. <laughs> so people who might not really talk to one another, who might be uncomfortable, were all, you know, in this together. And I would say I, I saw more ecumenism on the other side than I did on our own, but I, I also saw a vast amount, and I was just, Lord, I part of what I did when I began, and I began going around begging because I realized, you know, when I realized I had to listen to God and do what he was calling me to do, I was going to have to become a beggar. And I, that's very hard for me because I'm very proud. I would myself would rather eat dandelion weeds from a ditch than ask for anything. <laughs> but I, I realized that I've got to go beg for, for people. And so I called the three bishops that I knew of in my area and, um, the, I think it would have been the Diocese of the Rio Grande and so the Roman Catholic. No, that would have been the, the Episcopal mm -hmm. and then the, the Roman Catholic as well. And then the Anglican. And I, all three of the bishops were enormously supportive and all had good directives. The Roman Catholic put us in touch with Catholic charities. And so they were able to do huge flower donations and oh, donations wonderful. of other things. And yes. And there was no, you know, it's like, oh, don't, there was no, this food only goes to Roman Catholics or, uh -huh, you know, right. it was territorialism for everyone. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and then also on the U S side, you know, the Quakers got in on it, the Latter-day Saints, they, oh, wow. they were extraordinary. They sewed all of these school supply bags for the children and filled them with supplies and the different Roman Catholic groups, the Anglicans, the Baptists the Episcopal, so many flavors of Christianity, and there was so much goodwill. It was only during the time when the Episcopal Church was splitting, and there was a question as to which of which side Anglican churches on the Mexico side of the border would go, that there began to be some problems with diocesan efforts on this side and yeah. I will not name names and on I never said a word and this is the first time I would ever, have ever spoken publicly about it and it broke my heart but yes we mm -hmm. we absolutely have to let it be to the glory of God not our own 
it is not about going in to colonize people to to make our church look like the one that it's doing that's doing more or that has grown or you know yes your church may grow physically but have you really grown <laughs> yeah that is a question so, that's a legitimate question yeah it was utterly beautiful and just you know it i i accuse myself it brought me to tears i i had had such a grudge against a roman catholic priest in silver city for years because he had gotten mad at a priest on the other side who I considered very long suffering and so I got so angry and you know he was drinking coffee from a silver tea set and I criticized that and I mm -hmm. you know basically got thrown out of his office <laughs> and and so for years I didn't like him but I knew when I went back to beg I'm going to have to go there I can't afford my pride what is my pride? My pride is nothing. So I went and he gave me the most gracious welcome and ended up renting us an office at the border and putting me on their Catholic television and, and allowing me to deliver, you know, an appeal instead of the homily that he would do. And just, and I just wept. Eventually he went to Palomas himself and handed out food from the back of a truck. And wow. I just cried and cried because I had been, my heart had just decided who he was. And that was what I was stuck with. And, <laughs> you know, and when we do mm -hmm. that, we really we close down our, our love of God and God's ability to reach us. <laughs> mm. It's this reminds me, Victoria, of I had several Christian leaders on the podcast a couple weeks ago talking about forgiveness and different aspects of forgiveness. And one of my guests talked about the fact that we're all such debtors to God that how can we it's like we're dealing in pennies and God has forgiven us billions and billions. And we're just worried about, you know, who owes who this amount of pennies. It's so easy to hold on to the little things and to forget how much it can obstruct what God can do or wants to do and the joy that he wants to pour out and the expectations he wants to mess up that we yeah. have for other people. <laughs> You know, another another story where I accuse myself and God was really working <laughs> on this one. One day I, I go, I had barrels, I had set up barrels at the grocery stores and even at the farm, they were different than the bean donations that were coming in. And but they were just sort of people could buy something from the farm and put it there for the barrel. I went to pick up the donation. I had been told there were some beans there, and this was at the beginning of the project. There wasn't a lot of food compared to the need, compared to the vast need, and but it was gone. And at the farm, you know, they were bewildered and innocently told me that someone had come and and was very happy to take the beans that had taken them. And I was furious, you know, I was like the border collie of beans and the border collie of food aid. Oh, yeah. I found out who it was and I called them on the telephone and I, you know, I said, I, this is really unconscionable. I can't believe you did this. I'm, I am coming over to get those. And if they are not there for me, I'm going to call the police and I'm coming back with the police. This is me. I mean, I was just anyway, yeah. he goes, may it be to the glory of God. And I thought, 
what an odd thing to say. So anyway, I went and I didn't know what I was facing. I drove over there. It was about half an hour away. I knock on the door and a blind, disabled man answers. <laughs> and it turned out they had simply been taken by mistake. He himself was a deacon in his church. Oh, oh no. And needless to say, uh, he quickly joined the project and received many more beans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, I mean, my hot head. I just, that was deeply humbling. <laughs> it was, there I've been uh... yelling at at a blind disabled man who is like this pillar of 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 goodness and 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 he says may it be to the glory of god and i thought how how beautiful that someone could say that a mistake or even wrongdoing you know that's probably been the most important thing i've learned is that no matter no matter what no matter what may it be to the glory of god and it's such a gentle response. That's very difficult to answer in anger. <laughs> if someone says that. <laughs> Victoria, I wonder if I could ask you a final question in light of Holy Week, in light of the Lord's passion, having to do with some children's art that I'm sure that you saw during your time in Mexico. This is from one of the articles you sent me. The first line of this article really struck me. It says, it is in the small where everything truly important is. There are only small things in this whole world and children know this. And it stuck out to me because in some of the information you sent me about the San Isidro Bean Project, children's drawings were part of the, the PowerPoint. You worked in a ministry, an associated ministry called Casa de Soles for children whose parents have been murdered or imprisoned. And you know, you have kids, you give them a box of Crayolas and they'll draw pictures and they'll say what's on their hearts and, and on their minds. And recalling that many of these pictures were drawings of Jesus on the cross, Jesus and the Virgin Mary. I wonder, Victoria, is there a drawing, a children's drawing that sticks out in your memory in which a child was, was sort of putting under the cross their own prayers, their own thoughts? Is there an instance of this that stands out to you? We, one of the things that I did when I would go in to work with ministers is, is donate art supplies so that the children could draw their prayers. And when it gave the children a voice and it brought back their messages, essentially the messages of their spiritual lives to those on this side. And yes, many of them were, did have the images of Christ on the cross. And so their prayer, obviously for them, this was, this was about prayer. This was how they saw, how they visualized their prayer. And the, it's hard to choose one. The messages are so poignant, you know, that I remember, may there be no more violence. And one, may the food and water not run out. That one's very hard. Mm -hmm. They would sometimes draw themselves crying at, at empty tables or sleeping on the grass because they had run out of energy, you know, when mothers were just giving their kids a teaspoon of sugar and sending them back to bed in the morning. But 
to see their prayers, to know this is the desire of this little one's heart, simply to have food <laughs> or to simply have a safety for their family. They obviously love their church very much. I, I remember in the Anglican Church of Mexico Church in, in San Jose de Anabra, the priest there, he had the children of his church draw their church itself. And they did that in the most amazing way. They drew it in all different colors or glowing with all these rays. And this is a place where children you know, they hardly smiled at all during my visits there. They, you just didn't see smiles on children much anymore. But they did smile as they as they did this art. So they need school supplies for, for Sunday school. Every, every church does. I mean, generally there's one bowl of broken crayons and then paper that's somehow scrounged from somewhere. But they need school. They need Sunday school supplies. <laughs> Here I am. I can't resist a perk. <laughs> no, please do. That, that's what I mean about, about the small things. You know, I think we go in and we go, well, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to build a building or I'm going to do this big project. But it is in the small things such as boxes of crayons manila paper but we're all called and, and any of us who are called can do it i mean i i'm the proof that if god can use me <laughs> he can he can use anyone and if we proceed with love if we proceed with his love that that love just grows victoria it has been such a joy thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Living Church Podcast today, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoy this show, would you consider becoming a monthly supporter of the Living Church Podcast? Go to anchor.fm forward slash living dash church and click support, or just click the link in the show notes today. What does it mean and what does it not mean to refer to God in the feminine? Is it pastorally permissible ever to pray to God as mother? And are evangelicals starting to be like really into the Virgin Mary? In two weeks, theologian Amy Peeler will join us along with fellow theologian Wesley Hill to discuss Amy's new book, Women and the Gender of God. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been good to be with you once again. Peace.